been a few weeks now since we last turned to Revelation, so we'll just take a moment to remind ourselves where we are in the book. After Jesus' message to the churches in the very early chapters, then John was shown a vision of the throne room of heaven in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 5 focused in on Jesus Christ. He was presented in chapter 5 as the Lamb who was slain. The one who purchased people for God by his death on the cross. But now the Lamb is risen. In chapter 5, the risen Lamb was found worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Almighty on the throne. That scroll, we were told, was sealed with seven seals. It contained God's will for the rest of history. His purposes both purposes of salvation and purposes of judgment. That scroll was entrusted to the Lamb. And the significance of that is Jesus Christ is now overseeing the implementation of God's plans and purposes. He's making sure those purposes are carried out. And in chapter 6, we were given an overview of God's purposes for judgment. As the Lamb began to open the seals, the four horsemen rode out, bringing limited judgment across the earth. Then the end of chapter 6 described the final judgment at the end of history. It was described as the great day of the Lamb's wrath. Six of the seven seals were opened in chapter 6. But before the seventh seal was opened, John was taken through history again. Chapter 7 described the same time period as chapter 6, the time between Christ's resurrection and his return. But in chapter 7, the focus was no longer on God's judgment. It was on God's purposes of salvation for his people. Not one of his people will be lost. Each one of his people will enter at last into God's presence. Chapter 7 told us, in God's presence they will be sheltered and satisfied forever. And so we can picture chapters 6 and 7 like this. They both cover history from Christ's resurrection to return. Chapter 6 deals with judgment during that time, and chapter 7 deals with salvation during the same time. Now what we find in chapters 8 to 11 is a very similar pattern. Chapters 6 and 7 dealt with seven seals. Chapters 8 to 11 deal with seven trumpets. Last time we looked at chapters 8 and 9, and we were given more aspects of God's judgment throughout history. Chapters 8 and 9 dealt with upheaval in creation and also with demonic activity. Both of those are elements of God's judgment on this rebellious world. Throughout history, his judgment is displayed to some degree in what we often call natural disasters. And God's judgment is shown in permitting Satan and his hordes to torment and deceive God's enemies. Six trumpets sounded during chapters 8 and 9. 
There's one trumpet left. But before the seventh and final trumpet signs, we have chapter 10 and most of chapter 11. And as we come to look at those chapters, we're going to see the focus returns to God's purposes for his people throughout history. So the pattern of 8 to 11 is very similar to chapters 6 and 7. First, the focus is on judgment through history. And now, we're going to see the focus shift back to God's people. And in particular, the mission of God's people. Hopefully at this point, we're beginning to see what I meant earlier in previous weeks when I spoke about progressive parallels. Again and again, we're being taken through history. But each time through, more color is being added to the picture, layer upon layer. And this morning, we come to chapter 10. If you're turning there in your Bibles, it's page 1240. Or in the large print, 1923. Revelation chapter 10. And we'll read the whole chapter. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour. But in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is God's word. The message of chapters 10 and 11 is that we have a gospel to proclaim. This morning we're looking at the first part of this. And as we look at this, we need to remember the context. 
Chapter 9 ended on a pretty ominous note. After all the terrible judgments that were described in chapters 8 and 9, we were told in chapter 9 verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. That is the context in which chapters 10 and 11 are going to tell us we have a gospel to proclaim. It's a context where people love darkness rather than light. It's a context where people would rather cling on to Satan's lies than repent of their sin and bow in submission to Jesus. We have to understand that reality. It's a reality Jesus himself was very clear about. It's all through the New Testament, not just here in Revelation. You and I are not sent as messengers to a neutral world. We are sent to a world that prefers darkness to light. We have to understand that. But we are not to despair because of it. We're not to give up or shut up because of it. Why not? Because the one who calls us to be his witnesses is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He's building a kingdom. And his kingdom cannot fail. Look again at the opening verses of chapter 10. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. Who is this? We have to ask the question because this person is is described in quite a bit of detail. And in fact, if the word angel were not here, it would be very obvious this is Jesus. The description here is drawn from descriptions earlier in this book. Chapter 1 said about Jesus, look, he is coming with the clouds. And this individual comes robed in a cloud. Chapter 4 said the throne of God was encircled by a rainbow. In chapter 5, Jesus was with the Almighty on that throne. And here, the figure comes with a rainbow above his head. When John saw the risen Jesus in chapter 1, his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Here, the figure John sees has a face like the sun. In chapter 1, the risen Jesus had feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. Here, the figure has literally feet, although the NIV translates it as legs, feet like fiery pillars. 
In chapter 5, the risen Jesus is pictured as a slain lamb. But he's described, you'll remember, as the triumphant lion. The lion who takes the unopened scroll from the Almighty's hand and then opens it. Here in chapter 10, the figure, we're told, sounds like a roaring lion. And he holds in his hand an opened scroll. We'll think later about why it's called a little scroll here. But for now, the point for us to notice is anyone who has read from the start of this book will read this and they will see a figure who looks and sounds exactly like Jesus. So is this Jesus? Well, no, apparently not. Verse 1 says it's an angel. A mighty angel and certainly an extraordinary majestic one but still an angel. So then why does he look and sound exactly like Jesus? I think the explanation is this. Revelation describes the risen Jesus as being on the throne of heaven. In fact, that's how the rest of the New Testament describes him too. He is exalted to the highest place. And there he will remain until he returns to this earth as the conquering king. Jesus is on the throne. But the New Testament insists just as strongly Jesus is ruling this earth. He's working out the Almighty's purposes in the thick of human history. He's not a detached king. He knows, remember, when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows the state of his church in perfect detail. We saw that in chapters 2 and 3. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows, and he will make sure all things work for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. So how does Revelation then convey that to us? How does it assure us Jesus is seated in the highest place and also fully involved in all the little details of life on earth? How does Revelation show us that? It shows us here this representative of Jesus equipped with all of Jesus' power and authority. Jesus has opened the scroll containing God's will for history. And that will will be done. Verse 2 tells us this representative of Christ plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. A few weeks ago when we were looking at the book of Joshua in the evening... We saw how Israel defeated a group of five Canaanite kings. And after the battle, Joshua had the leaders of Israel come and put their feet on the necks of those defeated kings. It was a symbolic gesture for all Israel to see. And Joshua even explained what it meant. He said to the people, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you're going to fight. 
So putting their feet on those enemies' kings was a way of showing the Lord's power over those enemies. And here, we're being shown Christ's power over land and sea. He has put his foot on them through his representative. The Savior we serve is in control. All things are under his feet. These opening verses of chapter 10 are showing us the reign of the risen one. Yes, this world is hostile to him, but his will will be done. And when he commissions you and me to be his witnesses, that means we are not called to a lost cause. We are part of a cause that cannot fail. So far, so good. But notice what happens next in this vision. Verse 3 says that when this representative of Christ shouts, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. These seven thunders come as a response to the shout. In other words, they happen in history at the command of the risen Christ through his representative. But we don't know what these seven thunders are. We don't know what they represent. And the reason we don't know is because John is forbidden by heaven to tell us what they mean. What's the point? I think the point is simply that God always knows more than we do. This book tells us plenty about God's purposes for history. But it doesn't tell us everything. There are aspects of God's will that are just not revealed to us. God tells us what we need to know in order to trust him and serve him and have confidence for the future. But he doesn't tell us all there is to know. Nor even all that we would like to know. The book of Deuteronomy says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may follow all the words of this law. The word law there means instruction. It includes not just commands, but also details about God and his character and his ways. Those words were spoken to Israel by Moses. And Moses' point is God has told us plenty, He has shown us plenty. We know he's holy and good and trustworthy. And when it comes to obedience, we have more than enough to be getting on with. But, Moses says, let's not think we know as much as God. He's greater than us. And frankly, God has not laid all his cards out on the table. 
there are some cards he's keeping close to his chest. I think that statement in Deuteronomy is what's being illustrated for us here in Revelation 10. We know so much about God. And we know it with certainty. He's infinitely good and powerful. And we know enough about God's plans so that we can serve him with full confidence. He's never going to disappoint us. But let's not kid ourselves. We know all there is to know. There are two important applications of this. First of all, when you and I think about our own lives, let's never think we know exactly what God's doing or what he ought to be doing. Let's be humble enough to realize he knows more than we do about our lives and about his good purposes for our lives. We know enough to know he's trustworthy. So let's trust him. Even when we really don't understand what he's doing. There's a second application when it comes to the future. When we think about the future, let's be humble enough to realize God just hasn't laid all his cards out on the table. We cannot predict exactly how this or that world event fits in with God's timetable. God has shown us, and we're seeing it in this book, the broad brush strokes of his plans for history. But we are simply being arrogant if we think we can figure out the precise little details. And of course, that never seems to stop people trying. For hundreds of years, people have been claiming they have figured out God's detailed plan and they write books about it. But they always end up looking like idiots. You and I are to believe and obey the things God has revealed. And we're to be humble enough to remember he hasn't revealed everything. We have to bear in mind the unwritten things. Maybe in heaven we'll learn the secret of these seven thunders, but not before. And there are many things about our lives we're just not going to understand until heaven. What comes next is here to strengthen our confidence. Because if we should be humbled by the fact that some aspects of God's purposes are hidden from us, then at the same time, we should be filled with confidence. And the reason for that is the unbreakable promise that we have. Look again at verse 5. Then... The angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. 
But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. This mighty angel, who's representing Christ on earth, now swears by the sovereign Lord of earth and heaven. And if the sealed up details of the seven thunders should humble us, this promise should give us great courage. Remember, in this series of visions, six of the seven trumpets have already been blown. And here the promise is, when God's time comes for the last trumpet, nothing in heaven, earth, or sea is going to delay that trumpet. In the chapters to come, we are going to see beasts coming from the earth and the sea. We're going to see a dragon thrown down from heaven. All of those beasts are enemies of God. And they have a certain amount of power. But none of them, nothing in heaven, earth, or sea, can hold back God's purposes for history. The specific purpose that's mentioned here is called the mystery of God. That is what is going to certainly be accomplished, we're told. That is what no enemy of God can stop or even delay. So what is it, this mystery of God? Is it another reference to secret, unwritten things? Well, no. We're told it's a mystery God has already announced to his servants, the prophets. Literally, he has gospeled to his servants, the prophets. This mystery is good news God first announced to the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, God promised a Messiah one who would save his people from their sin. God promised he would be a king who would come in David's line. He would rule over an everlasting kingdom. God announced to Isaiah that kingdom would climax in a new heavens and a new earth. It would be a place where the sign of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. But first, this Messiah would be despised and rejected by mankind. He would be punished by God for our iniquities. God announced that to Isaiah as well. And we could spend all day going through Old Testament passages. But the point is, what we know today as the gospel, the good news, was first announced in the Old Testament. But the thing is, until Jesus rose from the dead, it was all a bit of a mystery. We can see that in the lives of the disciples. We're told at the end of Luke's gospel that the risen Jesus had to explain to his disciples all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now the fact is, he had actually explained it all before he died too but they didn't get it until after he rose. 
That's when the pieces of the mystery fell into place for them. Jesus is the servant of God who suffered in our place. He's the descendant of David whose kingdom will never end. He's the one who will return, bringing the new heaven and earth. That's the good news that was announced in the Old Testament. But it stayed a mystery until Christ rose from the dead. And here in Romans 10, Revelation 10, the mighty angel swears by God Almighty. And he says, these things cannot be delayed. The promise of the gospel is unbreakable. When God's time comes, the seventh trumpet will sound. And we'll see next week, chapter 11 tells us, as that final trumpet sounds, heaven is going to shout. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. There are many things you and I do not know. But so long as God is on his throne, we can know this. The promise of the gospel will not fail. Christ will reign forever. And those who trust in him will share in his reign. That promise is as unbreakable as God himself. What he has announced will be accomplished. And now in John's vision, after all of those assurances about God, now comes the command to John. And through John to us, eat this scroll. This is a call to faithful witness. Look again at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I said earlier, we will think about why this scroll is called a little scroll here. But in fact, you'll notice it's not always called little. In verse 8, it's simply the scroll. And so we mustn't make too much of the word little. We're certainly to think here of the scroll back in chapter 5, the one Christ took from the hand of the Almighty and then proceeded to open. This scroll, I think, is pretty much the same thing. It contains God's purposes for history. And if there's any significance to the word little, I think it shows that not every single detail of that scroll in heaven is also contained in this scroll. 
For example, the seven thunders of verse 4 are certainly contained in the scroll in heaven. God knows what they are. But we can be sure those details are not in this scroll. Remember, John was not allowed to write down what the thunder said. He's certainly not going to be given a scroll containing what the thunder said. In any case, John is told by a voice from heaven to take the scroll and eat it. What is that about? Well, remember, this is a vision. John is not being asked to literally choke down a wad of papyrus or animal skin, whatever it's made out of. No, he is being asked, though, to take this scroll and absorb the contents of it till it becomes part of him, till its message has mastered him, till he identifies with it completely, till the purposes written in the scroll have become the purposes John lives for himself. Then, having digested the message himself, John is to pass the message on to others. Verse 11 says he's to prophesy. Not meaning so much that he's to foretell the future, but rather he's to pass on this message from God about the future and the present. And it's important to realize this is not unique to John. In the Old Testament, God gave Ezekiel a message to deliver. And in a vision, he also gave Ezekiel a scroll to eat. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. It's worth comparing those chapters with Revelation 10. We're not going to do that now, but Ezekiel's experience does show this memorable picture is not just for John. It's relevant for all God's people who have a message to deliver. Don Carson has summed up the point of the scroll eating like this. He says, you cannot give out the word of God until you take it in. And we are all called to give out God's word, to be his witnesses. And so, we are all to be Bible eaters. We are to take God's word Bite into it, chew it, and swallow it. In other words, we're to read it, meditate on it, and then submit ourselves to it. Only if we're doing that will we ever be able to pass it on to others. It's one thing to know what God's Word says... It's another thing to be mastered by God's word. To absorb it so that it flows out naturally in our conversation, but also in our ambitions, our concerns, our use of time, our actions, our whole manner and demeanor. That's a lifelong process. And it's what we are called to as Christ's witnesses on earth. 
At our next table talk, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be thinking about ways we can become better Bible eaters as Christians. But notice what John discovers in verse 10. He says, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. This is exactly what the angel said would happen. John experiences God's word as bitter sweet. It's sweet because it contains words of life. Man cannot live on bread alone. If he's going to really live, he needs God's word. The psalmist knew about the sweetness of God's word. Psalm 19 says, The decrees of the Lord are sweeter than honey. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Psalm 119 says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. God's word is pure and good. It's a message of salvation and grace and eternal love. Submitting to that word leads to true life and true joy. When you and I come to God's word with a desire to understand and then obey, it will be sweet to us. Increasingly sweet over the course of our lives. But what about the bitterness? Someone has said, the word of God is sweet to us. And we also realize that what we must say will give us stomach ache. In what way is that true? Well, if you and I are going to be faithful witnesses then we cannot share the good news without also sharing the bad news. In fact, people won't understand the good news unless we give them the bad news. That's part of God's word too. The reality is everyone outside of Jesus Christ is going to hell. Who likes to talk about that? Doesn't that give you stomach ache? Yes, we don't go out of our way to be offensive. We have a responsibility to be sensitive. If we truly love people, we will be sensitive. But we can't avoid this. We cannot be faithful witnesses unless we tell the truth that those outside of Christ are condemned already. And continuing to reject Christ leads to eternal condemnation. If we can deliver that message with a cheery laugh, then we have got a problem. If we deliver it with the seriousness we should, then we will feel some of the bitterness that's in store for people. 
some of that bitterness will churn in our gut. Doesn't it? Sometimes. When you think about your family, people you work with, Then add to that the fact that many people just couldn't care less and don't want to know. Remember how chapter 9 ended. Despite all of God's warnings, people still didn't repent. They didn't stop their idolatry. The more God's word becomes part of us, the more bitterly we're going to feel the world's rejection of God. Remember Jesus standing on that hill overlooking Jerusalem. We looked at the passage on Palm Sunday. He looked at the city and he wept over it. The city that was going to kill him. He said, if you had only known what would bring you peace. But judgment is coming on your unbelief. Jesus felt the bitterness in his gut. If you and I take in this word, we will experience a sweetness like nothing else. The rewards are eternal. There's amazing joy too when we see others come and believe this word for themselves. And we will experience bitterness too. The kind of bitterness that's only known to those who see eternity and who weep over those who will not repent. That is the bitter, sweet experience of a servant of Christ. Next week we'll see more about this. But for now, let's remember our calling to take in God's word so that we can give it out. And let's have confidence in God's unbreakable promise. His kingdom will come. Despite the rebellion and the rejection and the hostility. Let's remember we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. We're serving the risen Jesus who is still leading sinners home. And there are many who are going to believe and be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. So let's stand and praise the one who is bringing all this to pass. We're going to sing, you're the word of God the Father. And then hear the call of the kingdom.